Hey, it's Brandon Laws. Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. This is a podcast where we explore challenges and opportunities of modern day work and all the conversations that we're having with the experts and leaders. We're out to make workplaces better and truly transform your workplace. Well, in today's episode, I invited Jim Wetrich on the show. He's the author of Stifled, Where Good Leaders Go Wrong. He joins us to discuss the critical issue of current management models. They're not fitting the needs and desires of the next generation of employees. And Jim believes that we must change and adapt to the changing world of work, which I believe that too. But m- many companies, they're, they're still relying on outdated practices and assumptions about what good leadership is. So we'll be talking in this episode about the impact of performance management, the role of managers in a rapidly changing world, and how to streamline communication and decision-making processes. So you'll definitely want to listen to the full interview with Jim Wetrich. It's touching on a lot of pressing issues and a whole lot more. So I hope you enjoy. Make sure to connect with me on LinkedIn and Instagram. Love connecting with listeners and hearing how you're liking the show. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll talk to you next Tuesday. Hey, Jim, it's a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Brandon, thanks for having me. It's a delight and a privilege and an honor to be with you and your listeners today. You wrote a great book. It's called Stifled, Where Good Leaders Go Wrong. And you wrote about how one critical issue that current managers are really facing, the models that we've used for years, historically, it's not fitting this new world of work and with the needs and desires of this next generation of employees. Why do you believe this? The world has changed as, as you just alluded to, and we've got to change with it. I mean, one thing I think we've learned uh, among many things during the pandemic is we have to be agile, we have to change, we have to adapt. I mean, there are so many great stories. I'm sure you've had some on some of your previous podcasts about the pivots that companies make, huge companies like Ford, Medtronic, uh, down to smaller companies that started doing things that they had no idea they could even do or had the talent to do. All that said, the way we're working, how we want to work, when we want to work, uh, how we want to be judged about our work has all changed. And yet we continue to lean on prior practices, prior assumptions, and uh, try to continue to force them into models that just won't accept them today. And it's, it's, it's very frustrating. And one of the areas that I like to talk about a lot, but we don't necessarily have to talk about it today, is performance management, right? I mean, there's still plenty of companies that do annual performance reviews, even though there's just absolutely mountains of data that show they're ineffectual and that employees don't like them. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. We were actually talking offline just a little bit ago before we pushed and record on this podcast. And we were talking about how managers often don't even know what their job is. And amid all of this change, you've got a new generation of workers. You've got people who expect employers to talk about social justice issues. Um, Technology is changing rampantly. It's the the leader's job and manager's job. It's It's challenging. And if you could speak to that audience right now and say like, here, focus on 
you know, a few things and get grounded so that they can move forward with this new future? What, what would you say to them? First of all, my hat's off, and I know there are many people that are in the people management, human resource, um, you know, space that listen to your uh, podcasts, and my hat's off to them. I, I can't possibly imagine how difficult it's been in the last couple of years to be in those roles. I mean, think of a global company, not only uh, having a global workforce, but maybe working in 150 or 200 countries with all the stuff going on. It really gives me a headache when I think about it. So my hat's off to all the people that are doing what they're doing. I think part of what's got to happen, Brandon, is we've got to get things a little bit more streamlined. I do a lot of coaching. I love to coach. I love working with people. And by that, I mean, I talk to so many people that are spending all day finding information. You know, we've we've almost overdone it with communication. There's all kinds of apps, Slack, Teams, portals, email, text messages, voicemails, you know, SharePoint, all those things. They're great. They're all great. But People are running around all day trying to find information um, because there's just too much of it. And we're creating, you know, almost boundaryless work environments where people can work whenever they want to work. And I like the fluidity of that, but we also have to set some boundaries because there are some people that just won't stop working because they don't realize that it's never going to all get done, right? We never finish our work. We never finish all the emails. We never get all our to-do stuff done. And there's always going to be more work. So we've got to be more intentional about giving people space, helping them with communication, and then also not letting them bury themselves in communication, right? How many times have you been working with a client, a customer? I got to go. I got to go. I got another Zoom. I got to go. Right? <laughs> I've heard that so many times, right. even today. <laughs> and we're not giving ourselves break mentally, physically. And I have read where some companies are saying, look, uh, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays are collaboration days, Tuesdays and Thursdays are individual days where we don't want any team activities. We want people to have time to get their work done. And I don't know what the answer is. It varies by business unit. It varies by company. It varies by country. But we've got to be more intentional about it and giving people time to really get stuff done as opposed to just you know going from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. just without breaks. I, I agree. Yeah, part of me thinks like the lack of focus or just the, the options that we have or just all the information and noise that's just running around in our mind. And the fact that the lines are blurred as far as boundaries go. I mean, a lot of people are working from home and they're more connected than ever. And so they never get a break. And I think it's part of like probably why you wrote the book Stifled is like there's all these things that managers and leaders are doing that literally hinder their ability to lead well. Exactly. What was the reason you decided to write this book? Was it just over the years of experience? You just saw leaders struggling with this? Yes. The answer to your question is yes. I saw leaders struggling. I saw companies struggling. And I don't think we're really being as helpful as we could be. And a lot of companies, as we talked about before we got started, a lot of companies are scaling back. They're asking people to do more with less. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal just about a week or two ago. And, you know, Microsoft has done all kinds of analytics on their tools for their own employees, and they found they're working harder than ever. Hmm. But yet, they're, you know, they're not, they're not bashful about saying, but we're asking them to do more. 
we're not also providing Brandon the education and training, right? As you mentioned earlier, individual contributors get rewarded. They get a management position. They're thrown into a management position. They may go through a two-day, three-day, four-day, you know, check-the-box type of training program, and then that's it. We don't help develop them. We don't teach them some of the big mistakes that they can make and often make as a new manager. We don't train them. We don't mentor them. And, you know, as I mentioned in the book, Brandon, who's managing the managers, right? Um, We're also not doing a good job of managing the people that are managing the new manager. Right. In your book, Stifled, you cover 17 areas, which we're not going to cover all of them. I want to touch on a few of them, but... I think a lot of these areas are really helpful because you've seen leaders become stifled in in their ability to lead. They get hung up on certain areas. Like the way you outlined this book is great. So I want to encourage listeners to go get the book. We'll cover a few of the items and then um, I just, I'm excited to to dive in. So the first one I wanted to touch on was focus on failure. And there's a quote I pulled from it, which is great. Quote says, sometimes a big mistake provides a priceless learning opportunity, end quote. And I couldn't agree more with this because I think intuitively we know that we should, I wouldn't say celebrate our failures necessarily, but at least like do a debrief. Like why why did we fail? What did we do wrong? What went wrong? How do we prevent this from happening again? So we know that it's intuitive, but people don't do it. That's a general statement, but like how do we prevent leaders, managers from sweeping failures under the rug, but instead learning it, learning from it and teaching others not to do the same. Yeah. And I know you've, you, you know, this from, from your work you're doing, you know, culture starts at the top. I mean, it just does. And leaders have to be very intentional about providing what we talk about and has been talked about now quite some time, psychological safety, where I can make a mistake and not fear retribution. You know, when I first started out and worked 40 years ago, it was a lot different. Uh, You know, failures are often a cause for exodus and, you know, getting punted out of the organization and not tolerated and, and even worse, not appreciate and learn from. And clearly some of the best learning we have comes from learning from our mistakes. I mean, why do coaches, you know, spend hours going over game film? That's a really good point. Yeah. <laughs> they're not <laughs> looking for things their kids did right. Although there's plenty of things they're looking for ways they can they can improve and get better. And I do think there are a number of organizations and a number of managers that still are intolerant and don't understand how powerful it can be to learn from our mistakes. I'm still making mistakes. I'm 65 years old. The key is, am I learning from my mistakes? And what am I getting out of those mistakes? And more importantly, you know, which is something that I, I value with the coaching relationship. How can I help others avoid some of those mistakes? Right. The the game film example is, is a good one uh, for a sports analogy, but like, how do you bring this to the business world? Like, how do you review mistakes that are made so others, you know, on the team don't make the same mistake? You know, some people are, are actually uh, very pragmatic about it and they have it as part of their normal routine. In some cases there have been after budget reviews or after we've put in a big piece of capital and built a project, People will go back three years, five years, a year later and say, okay, we just invested $10 million. We built this new piece of equipment. This was the aspiration for it. We thought we could make more products at a cheaper price as it turned out. Um, Looking backward, I think, can be as equally as important and powerful as looking forward. So I think part of it is just having a culture and having an environment where 
people, as you say, almost celebrate this and learn from it. One of your other uh, chapters is on growth mindset versus fixed mindset. I'm a huge fan of Carol Dweck's book, Mindset. I, I read it because I'm a parent. I, I, I wanted to instill that, the growth mindset in my kids. Uh, and to that point, a lot of people's the mindset is developed at a young age. So when we have people entering the workforce, you're sort of inheriting whatever mindset they believe in, whether it's fixed or growth. So how do you change a culture so it's more growth-oriented, uh, growth mindset-oriented? Do you have to hire to that? Do you, is there a way to change people and instill that in your culture? Like, I'm curious like, how you've done that over the years. Yeah, well, one of uh, my better examples, although it's very tactical, was in my last role when I took over a you know, $30 million business in the U.S. selling wound care products, mostly to wound care clinicians. Part of the sales force's compensation was for maintaining their base business. They got paid on retention and for the base business. Well, when I looked at the businesses that we were, we were in five separate subcategories of the market, if you will, our products serve different categories. And in every case, Brandon, based on the market data, all those markets were growing double digits. They were growing 10, 15, 20%. Right. So we were paying and rewarding our salespeople for getting up in the morning and doing nothing. And in fact, if they did nothing and their business grew at the rate of the market, they'd be growing double digits. So I actually killed the entire commission program based around maintaining your business. And I literally said, we are a growth company. We are a growth company. We're going to have a growth mindset. We're not maintaining anything. They were paid for maintenance. I said, we're not even going to use the word maintain. So I think part of it is, again, intentional, right? Setting that and then rewarding it. Um, and and uh, like you, I'm a huge fan of Carol Dweck. It's one of the go-to books I recommend. And I also recommend it to parents uh, who have young kids and teenagers. And I've actually used some of the questions in the book that Carol um, notes to sort of figure out whether you have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset actually in my interview process. That's smart. Yeah. Because if, if you can hire more growth mindset oriented people, uh, it probably is going to be instilled in your culture if people Absolutely. are thinking that way. No. You know, as a leader though, like what can you do to make sure that even contributor level employees are so aligned with the growth of the the business like salespeople is an easy one because you can change commission structures and incentive programs and things like that right so they're constantly focused on growing but how do you get a contributor level employee that maybe isn't so connected on the growth side well part of again going back to the last example and i was in that role for eight years uh, i had uh, like five signature initiatives and and one of them was growth and I constantly communicated and I constantly reinforced those messages to everybody. Everybody in the organization, we're a growth company, we're a diverse company, you know, we're a great place to work. And again, I think what happens in a lot of cases, Brandon, companies set aspirations and goals and visions and targets, and they kind of push it out and communicate it. And then that's it. There's no follow up. There's no discussion about it. There's no reinforcement of it. There's no explanation of it. And it just kind of dies. And I think it's like a fire. You've got to continue to give you know, fuel to it and you've got to continue to add oxygen to it. And you can't just 
say, boom, this is who we are and this is what we stand for. And this is our mission, vision and values. You got to continue to reinforce it and talk to everybody at every level of the organization and even reinforce it when you're onboarding new employees or, or in employee orientation. I don't know if you're familiar with the EOS model, the entrepreneur operating uh, system. We we use that internally to keep like KPIs and other yep. things and other goals in front of people. So they all roll up to what the overarching vision is. And we when we made that shift, I mean, and there's probably other models that you could use that are pretty similar, but it was a way to align the whole organization together and to keep people focused on like where we're going as a company in you know the next one, five, ten years. And and that was that was a huge shift. I think that's super uh, important. And one of the things that I experienced at Abbott, you know, we used to have these just inordinate number of annual goals. And one of the things that Miles White did when he became CEO, which I really gave him a lot of credit for, he said, look, people have like 20, 30, 40 goals. He said, we've, we've got to stop this. We've got to get back to the five things or eight things that matter, that matter to everybody. And part of what happens, as you know, is we get so distracted by all these things as opposed to those key, you know, performance indicators that really are important for everybody. Yeah. Another chapter is on the hypocritical leadership. Describe to me what a hypocritical leader is and and how leaders fall into this trap. Yeah, I think uh, the big trap, Brandon, it's a great question, is when people are really binary, right? We're going to do this. Uh, we're going to do this. And uh, one of my first experiences this was with a manager who stood up in front of a thousand people and said, we have salespeople, we have district managers, we have regional managers, we have VP of sales. And if you want to be something other than a sales rep, you're going to have to come into our operations here in headquarters, work for two years in this job, and we'll use that pool as a pool of candidates for district manager. This is what's going to be. You've got to come in and do this job Otherwise, you're not going to be a district manager. Well, guess what? A month later, something happened. An opening came up in Houston, Texas, and they moved a person directly from a salesperson into a manager role. So all of a sudden, a thousand people are saying, well, why is why is this an exception? Right. And you know what? What we should have said is this is the model. This is what we generally do. Yeah. But we will make exceptions. And the thing that managers, the mistake they made is, is not teeing up the fact that things are fluid and we may make exceptions. They get binary and say, you will not be a manager until you do this. Well, then boom. The minute that happens, the guy's credibility is shot, right? Shot. What else right. are you going to say that we're not going to do or that we're going to do and vice versa? It's just a matter of how you communicate it, how you hold yourself up. Look, the one thing you learn working in a really big organization is there's always exceptions. I could give you a list of a hundred different exceptions I saw in my career. That's just the way it is. But yeah. if you don't communicate that, then it really becomes a problem. seems like the worst thing a leader can do is to you know, set a policy or a philosophy and then do the exact opposite of what you just like projected on all your people. I mean, too often I see leaders doing that where they just they expect their employees to behave a certain way, but then they don't walk the talk. It's like, what? Yeah. Like, it seems like there's an easy way out of this. Like, just do what you say you're going to do and model the behavior that you wish to have on your employees. Right, right. I, I mean, we see it all the time and, and we see it 
in these big corporate breaches of ethics. It's, you know, person after person after person gets involved in something that they know from their heart and in their gut just isn't the right thing to do, but they continue to do it because they feel pressure to do it. And they're making money doing it, getting rewarded doing it, getting promoted doing it. And it's hard, right? The hardest thing I think a leader has to do is stay, stay true to who you are and being self-aware. Meetings, that definitely stifles people, right? Um, <laughs> I, I, I pulled a long quote out of this. I'm going to read it to you and I want you to like respond to it. So the quote says, meetings are to a great degree passe. Years ago, people had to get together personally to exchange information. Today, we have cell phones, texting, emails, video chat, apps, software packages, and communication feedback portals. We can make most decisions and share information quickly without a long, drawn-out, face-to-face meeting, end quote. So I know what you feel about meetings. I feel the same way, but I feel like most people, especially the ones I interact with, not only internally but externally, they're, they're falling into the trap of meetings. A meeting just to have a meeting, it's recurring, it's on the calendar. We need to meet to have a discussion about XYZ. We schedule 60 minutes, we fill up the 60 minutes. It's just like this trap. How do we encourage people to get out of this thing? Well, again, I think it's culture. I think it's leadership, right? We, we've, it's somebody at the top has got to say, stop the madness, right? It's incredibly unproductive. I talked to a, a person who works for a ginormous global company and they had an agile call every day with senior people because their boss wanted an update on a 90 page PowerPoint report. Every day they had an hour to go over changes in this 90-page PowerPoint. That's an expensive recurring meeting. And that's exactly <laughs> what I told them. I said, you know who's in the meeting. And I said, you've got a general idea of exactly how much they're getting paid, more or less, and benefits. I said, would you just calculate the number and give that to your boss? And say, look at the millions of dollars we're spending on this meeting that really, other than update you as to what's going on, is having no material impact on the business. And they eventually moved it to once a week, right? But we don't challenge that stuff. And it goes back to, you know, learning from our mistakes. Um, we've always done it that way. And that's the way we're going to do it because that's what's worked. And it's so amazing to see the data that you know we talk about in the book there are billions and billions and billions of dollars wasted every year globally in meetings that just are worthless yeah and on the other side of the spectrum though we have so many options with technology so we got texting and chat and and even that could be noisy though like you know if you were to swing the pendulum all the way to the other side it's like okay let's just make decisions really quick via text or a phone call or whatever that can get really noisy too if you're not really thoughtfully scheduling out your day and you just let other people's priorities and, and urgent needs like I don't know, like consume your day. I, what 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 advice do you have for leaders who are grappling with those? I things? think again, it goes back to you know being intentional about giving people some space, right? Some personal space, some personal time to get on top of things, to kind of sort things out, to take a break, whatever they need to do during those those times. It's too easy now to send too much information to too many people, and I don't know about companies in general. I just can tell you, even from a personal standpoint, I've got a small business. Email has almost become not useful for so many people because there's so much of it. You can't sort through it all. It's just massive. And it's too easy to 
to copy people when it's really <laughs> not that critical. And, and people are swamped. They're, they're just swamped in a morass of, of email communication. Yeah, it's it's tough. That's for sure. Uh, performance reviews. You touched on a little bit, but in the book, you said we're going through a revolution uh, with performance management. I think some people are still stuck in the past. Others are being progressive about it. But where do you think it's all going? I think the almost instantaneous feedback, you know, um, is going to become the norm. I, I hope and pray these annual performance reviews get killed, at least set up monthly, quarterly. We want leaders to give feedback, both positive and negative, when it happens, right? Yeah. And, yeah, I understand the annual goal, the quarterly budget, all those sorts of things, you know, but we want, and certainly the younger people that are coming into our organizations, want positive and negative feedback when it happens, not once a year. And what I've found, and one of the things I suggest to new leaders that come into an organization, not new to leadership or management, but when I took over that last job where I came in as an outsider, I tell people, get a copy of your staff's, whoever's working for you, if you have a staff, get a copy of their last couple of performance reviews if they've been there for a while. And one of the things I found when I did that in my last company, Brandon, is the degree to which they were put together was just unbelievable. In one case, one person had a one-line development plan. This, mm. this was the senior executive's annual development plan. One line. Read one book. That's it? That's it. <laughs> I mean, it's, all, it's, it's very focused. <laughs> Read a book about what? Gardening? Uh, astronomy? Uh, mystery? Yeah, right. I mean, it Crazy. just, what do you want? I mean, how, right? And, and That's on a career development plan. Right. On a career <laughs> development plan. Read one book. So we're not even doing a good job of supervising for those companies still using these annual performance reviews. Right. We're not even doing a good job. There, People are just sort of rubber stamping and looking at, well, we have a distribution. We have to force this group into a distribution of so many high performers, so many average performers, and so many low performers. And that's all we really care about is the distribution. All the rest of the stuff is just words on a piece of paper. Yeah, those, those days are gone, Jim. This might shock you, but... I'm a millennial on the upper end, but you know, I'm probably the first, one of the first generations we call like the trophy generation yep. where it's like, we, we needed a trophy for every little thing that we did. Yeah. And you know, when I got to the workforce back in 2008 amid the great recession, we, you know, we were doing annual performance reviews and I, I couldn't stand it where you'd basically have anxiety leading up to that. Cause you don't really know like how you're doing. I mean, you kind of, you know, you know, as a contributor, how you're doing, but you don't know what the other person is going to say about you. And if it happens once a year, that's just a missed opportunity for progress throughout the entire year. So I'm, I'm with you. I think those days are gone. Maybe we still do annual performance reviews, but we're going to be doing regular one-on-ones and check-ins. And we're going to be, we're going to be telling people feedback in the moment. I mean, that's a missed opportunity if you don't, because it's wasted. I mean, if you wait till the annual review to dump all the feedback, it's too late. Totally agree. And, and the other thing that occurs, particularly when it's individual and not team-based, is I have biases. I have biases. Uh, and I will always have biases. And we all have biases. And uh, whether I like it or not, I bring those biases to work. And some people I like better than others. Right. And I'm probably more likely to give them a good review than somebody else. But if it's team-based and it's more dependent on everybody who's interacting with those people and not just me 
against my direct report, it's much more fair and it's much more powerful. It's much more meaningful. That's the funny thing about performance reviews and it's actually sad you're talking about biases well we put the ratings you know whether it's a one through five or one through ten based on whatever we're scoring our people like you want to believe that's a subjective or objective type of rating because it's a it's a number score but it's inherently biased in how we feel about that person and it's just so flawed this is no objectivity at all (laughs) absolutely it's not based on any sort of criterion it's just a sort of gut about how i think you're doing or how i think you've done and by the way so often uh, it's only based on maybe quantitative assessment one of the things i i mentioned how do you know how i'm treating my employees as a leader if you're never there when i'm holding meetings with my employees whether it's team meetings staff meetings critique sessions feedback town halls whatever it is how do you know how i'm treating customers i mean you expect if something's really bad you'll get feedback but how do you know i'm not an sob in the office when nobody's around right yeah and just based on all these you know quantitative things like did i hit my sales number did i hit my profit number and did i manage my expense budget well has you have no idea how i'm managing Well, let's end with this. You have a chapter on managing in the modern workplace. I mean, it's changing a lot, whether it's driven by the people or the technology or tools or just our needs are changing as a a society. (laughs) How do do managers adapt to this modern workplace? Yeah, I think it's super exciting, right? I mean, it's it's the evolution of, of business, evolution as a society and an organization. I think the thing that's most important in my mind is learn, learn from what has happened and learn at what is happening. Uh, it's been a little surprising to me to see some of these companies still hiccuping about what are we going to do? Are we going to return to the office? Are we not going to return to the office? Are we going to go virtual? Are we going to go hybrid? And company after company after company said early in the pandemic, one of the big mistakes we made is telling people, you know, January 1st, we're all going to be back in the office or September 15th. But guess what? That was wishful thinking, Jim. <laughs> right. We're still doing it right now. Companies are I still know. saying, you know, by Labor Day, we're going to be back in the office. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it just surprises me how little, in some cases, so many senior people like myself have learned so little from what we've just experienced. I, I, I think it's fabulous, actually, what's happened because it's forced us to change the entire rules of, of operating and running a business. Yeah. What's interesting to me about just this idea of like adapting to this new world is like a lot of management and leadership principles, they're exactly the same. It's just like the the modes of communicating are different. The needs of people may be different too, but the way in which we treat our people should have been the same, you know, have empathy and compassion for people respect them, manage to results. I mean, all this stuff is the same. It's just like maybe the, the bells and whistles are a little different. It is. It is. And there's just no substitute for being empathetic. And I think one of the things that's really come out of work recently is that most people now realize, unlike when I started 40 years ago, I show up to work every day is a reflection of what's going on in my life. Right. 40 years ago, my boss owned me. Right. I was a servant to him or her. And you did what I was told. You know, now it's like, hey, you know, what's happening with you in your life? 
right? How are things? Um, because how I show up is a reflection of what's happening in my life and whether or not I'm having trouble or challenges or personal things. So I think more people now understand that than ever before. And that's so critical. Well said, Jim. Hey, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. This is so much fun. Your book is called Stifled, Where Good Leaders Go Wrong. I encourage people to go pick it up. Where do you, uh, you know, where do you want to point people to connect with you? Anything like that? Feel free to. Yeah, they can go find me on LinkedIn easily, James G. Wetrich, and go to jimwetrich.com. And, and uh, from there, you won't have any trouble finding me. My guest today has been Jim Big Red Wetrich. Thank you for coming on the podcast. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you. Thank you, Brandon. A real delight uh, and an honor to be with you today and your listeners. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of ZenMHR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on Transform Your Workplace is for general information and educational purposes only. Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.